Hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse, armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola. Summer is coming up around the corner, and I'm already getting up in the canyons around Boulder on my bike, climbing up Poor Man Road and Flagstaff while listening to baseball a lot, but sometimes even Colorado Public Radio, whose brightest star, in my opinion, Ryan Warner, is my guest today on Mile High Stash. Uh, Ryan and I have a little bit in, in common. Um, we both moved to Colorado from California, as a lot of people do, and we've both learned a lot from Terry Gross, although I've also learned a lot just listening to Ryan Warner on CPR. Just during our um, Mile High Stash conversation, Ryan surprised me by getting me to talk about myself a little bit, and he said, uh, maybe that's just the function of interviewing an interviewer. Um Speaking of interviewing, um, I'm doing another live episode of Mile High Stash um, on Saturday, June 3rd at the Roots Music Project in Boulder with um, singer-songwriter Steve Varney of um, uh, Gregory Allen Isakov's band as the guest. And I hope you can make it. Um, I also hope I learned something from Ryan Warner and do a decent job um, on stage. Anyway... Today's episode of Mile High Stash is brought to you by the historic Gold Hill Inn, one of my favorite places on earth. Um, It's just a few miles above Boulder, but feels not only a world away, but about 100 years away or 140 years away. Um, Some of the best nights of my life have been spent playing concerts at the Gold Hill Inn, and the inn is about to open back up for the season with meals and music and drinks. So look them up at goldhillin.com. Here is my conversation with Ryan Werner of Colorado Public Radio. But first, I have something else really special for you. Uh, Shame on you for a month of Sundays, as we say back home in Pittsburgh, if you live in northern Colorado and missed the send-off for Bud Bronson and and the Good Timers at the High Dive in Denver a few Saturdays ago. Brian Beer and his crew were really the um, kind of the punk rock mascot of the Baker neighborhood for a decade, and he's leaving Denver. Um, I, I chatted with Brian just briefly backstage before what might have been, but hopefully was not, the final Bud Bronson and the Good Timers show. Brian Beer. Hey, man. This is like a historic night oh, at the High Dive. And tell me it's not really your last show. I don't Bud think, Bronson. I doubt this is our last show. Yeah. I'll, that's all there is to say. Yeah. This, it would be a shock if we did not play another show Parenthesis, yes, parenthesis. Yeah, yeah, but you're moving. Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, uh, it's been a long, well, it's been 11 years in Denver and uh, 18 years in Colorado, and uh, it's just, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting older. 
and I want to do some things while I'm I'm single as the day is long. So yeah. I can go, and I should, and I will. So what does this neighborhood mean to you, and what does the high dive mean to you? Dude, how could you replicate this? Like, yeah. every... This is what any band in any city could ask for in their wildest dreams. Just like a clubhouse full of all the pals that has just like weathered all the changes and is that refuge where you can always go and see friends and uh, and there's awesome bands from out of town coming in too and um, I, I just yeah I mean like I don't know other I know every city has their own spot but I can't imagine what else I would want from another place than what we have here yeah. at High Dive and South Broadway. Well, if by some chance somebody had never seen Bud Bronson and the Good Timers, and this is the last show he ever played, how would you describe the band to them? All, all are welcome. You can show up to the show and you can get the picture um, and just hopefully enjoy the energy and the feeling. And then hopefully, ideally, the plan is that you can go home and then you can listen and then connect and find other ways to dig in and new levels and layers and all that. It's supposed to be a totally immersive experience. And uh, whether people take it as that or not, I'll, it's, it's been that for me. And uh, at, I could probably speak for a lot of the people that have been in the band that at least some of their lives have been chronicled through it or whatever. And that's, I'm, I don't know. At, I can say that about myself at the very least, and yeah. that's that's really all I that all, all I can control and that all I yeah. can ask for. I remember you singing that you wanted to play the sickest show that Lodo had ever seen. So yeah. will this be the sickest sickest show that the Hyde <laughs> has ever seen? Dude, there's been some damn good ones, and God knows uh, there'll be Satan knows there'll be many more to come. Yeah. So uh, all we can do is hope to put our fucking lightning guitar bolt on the top of uh, Mount Olympus with the rest of those bolts that'll be forever flying through the stratosphere. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Thanks for talking. Thanks, Adam. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Located in Heavenly Gold Hill, Colorado, the Gold Hill Inn was built in 1924 and has been owned and operated by the Finn family for the last 60 years. The inn is known for its fabulous three- or six-course meals and unforgettable concerts by local artists, from Gasoline Lollipops to Gregory Allen Isakoff. To get up to where time stands still, take Sunshine Canyon or Four Mile Canyon from Boulder and experience the Gold Hill Inn's wonderful food and music with all the fixings. And I have been around long enough to remember all the good times at Big Lots and I know it's a shame South Broadway's gone but we're all still kicking man, the party's never gonna stop. We're here with Ryan Warner of Colorado Public Radio. He is the man there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say. My first question for you is, where are you from? And um, let's just start there, actually. You know, it should be a straightforward answer where I'm from, but I'm actually from two places, if someone can be from two places. I was born and spent the first part of my childhood in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood right next to LAX called Westchester. And then in middle school and high school, we moved to Palm Springs, California, mm. where we had often spent weekends, and that became a second childhood home for me. So I suppose broadly I'm from Southern California, but my childhood is split between L.A. and the Coachella Valley. 
Yeah. And were you a radio nerd? Were you somebody who, who sat up all night with the the radio under the covers? Not really. I was a television nerd, yeah. and I thought for the longest time that I wanted to be a TV news anchor. I was obsessed with Peter Jennings. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. him yeah. Uh, from ABC News and World News Tonight. One I of the wanted... talking heads, one of the original, when it was referred to as a talking head. One of the original, you know, great anchors. Yeah. Not necessarily in, you know, the Cronkite era, but just a bit after that. And I thought that that's what I wanted to be was was Peter Jennings, mm-hmm. and I I fell into public radio. Actually, it, it involved a phone book and cold calling radio stations mm-hmm. and landing in public radio. I wish I wish I could say I'm someone who grew up listening to NPR. I certainly watched a lot of public television as a kid, but it was mm-hmm. it was by accident. Well, I feel like public radio and um, and also the News Hour. I mean, those are the only places we can go to now that feel unbiased and centrist. When I was a kid, there was Brokaw Mm. and Donaldson and Jennings. And Rather. Yeah. Yeah. You tuned in and they told you the news. And nowadays it feels more like, you know, you tune into one of of those channels and they give you their opinion Mm. and then you figure out whether it was true or not. Yeah, there's a that? lot of commentary as opposed to reporting and coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that responsibility to keep up the um, public radio um, ethos? Yeah. Absolutely. I do. Yes. And, you know, it's an interesting endeavor for me because I'm an interviewer fundamentally mm-hmm. and my show is an interview show. So that doesn't present you necessarily the same forum that like a nightly newscast would, where it's mm. pre-produced reports. We have to blend journalism news reporting with interviewing. Mm. So you do get some opinions for sure, but I, I think that what you don't get is a show that is specifically designed for opining. Mm. Um, it's more that we get to explore the thinking of the people you elected. You know, my regular interview with the governor, that dates back to before the Ritter administration, the Hickenlooper administration. Mm-hmm. It touched in the Owens administration. And sure, the the governors get to express opinions, but they don't get away with, you know, just saying the top line of what they want to say. We get to explore in depth what they're saying. So, you know, I I live in a bit of a hybrid reporting interviewing world. Yeah. So you grew up in LA. Did you go to journalism school? Not originally. I had a lot of internships in middle school and high school that Mm. had prepared me well for a broadcast career. And my mom is the one who said, it's one thing to learn to open the microphone and talk into it. It's another thing to have something to say when the microphone is open. So she implored me to study something other than journalism. And so my undergrad degrees are in French and political science with the idea that I would be exposed, you know, to the world and have something to say when the mic opened. And... So I I was in radio in undergrad, part of that phone book cold calling thing, Mm. studying French and political science. And then I did realize I wanted to give television a try. And in order to break into local TV, you have to have a tape, a resume reel. Mm -hmm. So I went to grad school for two years and I did study broadcast journalism in grad school. Essentially, I paid a lot of money for 
an audition tape to make it into television in Sioux City, Iowa. Wow. <laughs> and that was a big change from Southern California. Well, it wasn't a huge change because I had lived in Missouri for undergrad. Okay. So I knew the Midwest by that point. And um, we'd actually gone back to Iowa every summer because my family oh. is originally from this tiny little town called Waverly, Iowa. And it was not culture shock. I'd lived in France by that point as well. And um, so I wasn't some California snob who yeah. thought, you know, I'm in the hinterlands. Mm. Um in fact, I really, really despise when people talk about the real America versus the not real America. I just think it's all real. Mm -hmm. That brings me back to something I wanted to ask you is, you know, your voice goes all over Colorado. You're mm -hmm. in places like um, Grand Junction or Denver or yeah. Ward or Ward, Boulder. Sure. You know, so do you find a way to not... I mean, not necessarily identify with everyone of every kind everywhere in the state, but to, you know, find out who they are and what they're like. It's such a blessing to work at Colorado Public Radio for this reason, because the net, it's a network, it is set up such that you get out of the Denver Boulder bubble. Mm -hmm. And so we have a studio on Main Street in Grand Junction, and wow. we have a studio at KRCC in Colorado Springs. And to me, it just seems like a given that you're going to broadcast from somewhere other than the largest population center. And so we also do road trips. And, you know, I had a, a lovely time exploring southern and eastern Colorado. We broadcast from La Junta. We broadcast from Fort Morgan. We broadcast from Colorado Springs on that trip. And, you know, it's all the real Colorado. Mm -hmm. So it's a joy for me to just know this place deeper. You know, if, if I don't know this state like the back of my hand, I'm not doing my job. Wow. You're really passionate about Colorado, sounds like. I am. And I'm just filled with Colorado trivia. And the more, uh -huh. I, can, uh, the more I can acquire, the better. <laughs> you know. Well, um, the insane premise of this show is that <laughs> you, Ryan Warner, would be stranded completely alone yeah. in a cabin um, somewhere in, in Colorado. Um, it might be the Western Slope. It, it might right, be... Do I get to choose or are we imagining this place? Yeah, you're just imagining it. So it could be anywhere, really. Okay. Yeah. And How about, I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Ordway. Where is this? Ordway is in southern Colorado, southeast Colorado. And I was completely charmed by Ordway on a reporting trip. Small town on a reservoir, one of two reservoirs in Colorado where you can land a seaplane. Wow. Yeah. What's the other one? Uh, the other one is on the western slope, and I'm not going to recall the name of the other reservoir mm -hmm. or lake immediately. Yeah. But Ordway has a little bar called the Columbine Bar, and... Uh, the bartender is not often asked to make a Manhattan there, but I asked him to make a Manhattan, and I led him through the ingredients, and I had a really good Manhattan at the Columbine Bar in Ordway. So, okay, I'm That's stranded great. in Ordway. Yes, and there is a zombie apocalypse. I don't know if it's the zombie apocalypse, because uh -huh. there could be multiple. Okay. But you are in a cabin with enough food and water for indefinitely, you know, hopefully until this uh, zombie apocalypse has ended. 
and there's also a crank-powered Victrola, and you've got five vinyl albums with you. So what is the first one? I think these are in no particular order. Is that okay? Yeah. In other words, the fourth might be as important to me as the first. Why don't we start with Barbara, who's my favorite French singer, and the album is called Femme Piano, which is, you know, piano woman. Tell me about this album and this artist. I spent a year in France as an exchange student in high school. Yeah. And you, ha- you lived with three families over the course of the year, so it was a real immersion in different versions of French living. And my first host family, uh, I think very easy to say my favorite host family, they had such a festive home, and it was always filled with music and laughter and really good food and company. Mm-hmm. And they had this album, it was a CD, mm-hmm. of Barbara, who I think of as like a French version of goodness maybe like a little Joni Mitchell there's a little bit of of Judy Garland in there she is just the most beautiful piano player and singer songwriter wow yeah Jewish grew up I believe in Paris um pretty impoverished kind of a war you know one of those wartime stories Mm -hmm. and just became a huge and beloved French figure and not well known in this country in the way that like Edith Piaf is, you know, I wish more well known. You're helping Mm. me with that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, actually this last week, because people had been asking, I started a a playlist on Spotify for Mile High Stash. So not only can you listen to the podcast itself on Spotify. Oh, but the accompanying music. Yeah. So everyone who comes on the show and selects an album, I will put at least one track from each album on this playlist. So oh, beautiful. How, how do you say this? Uh, Barbara, Barbara, right? Yeah. Uh, and then Femme Piano, F-E-M-M-E, and then Piano. And this would accompany you well in your uh, apocalypse. Oh, I think so. Because, you know, if I'm confined to a particular space, I think I'd want the music to help me escape. So yeah. this would be transporting towards Paris, maybe. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the uh, experience in television and the journey from that to Colorado Public Radio? Well, I had done public radio in college. That was by accident. I knew that I wanted a job, some kind of side gig in broadcasting. So I did open the phone book and I started cold calling radio stations in Columbia, Missouri, which is where Mizzou is. And somebody answered at KOPN, which is the community held public radio station Mm. in Columbia. And they said, yeah, we need someone to do local breaks for fresh air with Terry Gross, which consisted of literally three or four breaks of 30 seconds or a minute, giving the weather and then underwriting, which is what we call advertising. And that was my shift was to babysit the board during Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I mean, talk about a sweet gig, right? You're paid to listen to Fresh Air. <laughs> you hear the name Terry Gross and you say, yes, I will do it. I will do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I didn't know who Terry Gross was. I didn't know what Fresh Air was because to You're that a TV point, nerd and not a radio nerd. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a public radio aficionado at that point. Of course, I quickly became one. Yeah. So 
Um, long story short, I had had radio exposure. I knew I wanted to be in television and went to Boston University, got a degree in broadcast journalism. It's weird to have a degree in BJ, but it's true. <laughs> and I got my first job in television in Sioux City, Iowa, the NBC affiliate there, where Tom Brokaw got his start, actually. And, you know, I was grateful for the experience. I had really magnificent colleagues. Mm -hmm. But local TV wears you down pretty quickly. Mm. I think my first salary was $14,000 a year. I was working harder than I'd ever worked in my life. Yeah, They'd made me weekend anchor, so I think I might have gotten a pay bump to 17 or 20 or something. But Dan Rather put it this way. He said a lot of local TV is nuts, sluts, and guts. Mm. It's it's coverage of the worst of us. Right. And that a lot of local TV can be summed up as the police and the fire department did their jobs today. And I just craved something deeper, something yeah. that explored the human experience more than I'm running to the scene of this accident. Yeah. And my mentor at the public radio station in college had moved on to another station at Antioch University in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And he said, come back to the, the light. <laughs> I broke my contract with KTIV. I have to pay them money. Wow. Even though I had very little of it. But it was the best money I ever spent. It was probably the best contract I ever broke. I, I've never broken another contract. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, that's how I came to see public radio, not as a blip in college, but as an entire career. Yeah. What did you learn from listening to Terry Gross so much? Oh, goodness. It's a, that's such a great question because I have thought of that experience mainly as just passive, just mm -hmm. getting to soak it all in. You know, I think that she probably taught me in that time the importance of details. So if someone tells you something is beautiful, don't stop there. Ask them why it was beautiful. You know, what was it the light? Was it the shadow? Mm -hmm. Was it shapes? What did it smell like? What did it taste like? So that when someone gives you a kernel... Your job is to go deeper and deeper and deeper and yeah. get something really vivid. Because as, as much as this is not a visual medium, radio, it actually is. The best radio takes you somewhere because you're, something is being described so accurately mm -hmm. that you are transported and you get a picture in your own head. Your interview with one of the ancestors of the victims of the Sand Creek Massacre was exactly what you're talking about. Oh. You went deeper and deeper and deeper. And this person sounded uh, very eager to share, you know, these stories that have been passed down. And so... Uh, Thank you. Yeah, the same way that you say that listening to Terry Gross was an education for you. And listening to her has been an education for me as well. Listening mm. to you is an education for me, for sure. Oh, that's a nice yeah. thing to say. Absolutely. You know, about that Sand Creek Massacre interview... A lot of the conversations I'd had about that atrocity and, frankly, the history that I knew, it was really in broad strokes. Yeah. And the beauty of that guest is that he was able to get 
incredibly detailed and specific in ways that reconfirm just how impactful that event was, not only on the people who suffered it immediately, but on the generations, yeah. you know, how it reverberated. And I, I so appreciated that Technicolor account. What is it like um, interviewing um, someone like that or uh, the survivors of the, the shooting at Club Q? Club Q mm. in the Springs. I'm really torn about interviews, especially when the trauma is much more recent. Yeah. Because I have every sense that when someone is speaking to me in the days and weeks after an attack like that, they're still in shock. Mm. And so there's a lot of conversation actually at CPR about to what extent are we helping people heal by telling their stories? And to what extent might we be re-traumatizing them or maybe taking advantage of them in a situation where they don't have all their faculties about them yeah. because they're in such shock and trauma. You started um, one of those conversations by saying, how are you? And then you said, actually, do you know how you are? That's right. And, and it seemed like the person you were interview, interviewing really appreciated that, actually. Yeah, and, and he said that he didn't know how he was. Mm. And I think it's those kind of meta moments where you stop and you check in on them that is maybe the difference between throwing someone on live TV immediately after a shooting and sitting down with them for 30, 40, or 50 minutes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think in those interviews, too, there's a lot of making sure not to assume they want to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit more delicate of, how would you feel about talking about this? Yeah. Um, I think it's also really important to tape those interviews because there were some questions that um, the Club Q guest in particular didn't want to answer or couldn't actually answer legally at this point right, in the process. Right. And if you do that live and they have to say, I can't answer that, that conveys um, something I don't want to convey because they're not being obstinate. Right. They're being... It's human not... and real and honest. And so to be able to record that and then not use those moments, I think is more respectful of where they are. Tell me more about ending up here in Colorado. I had been working uh, for a public radio station in Fort Myers, Florida, on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And Florida wasn't exactly my style. The, the West Coast of Florida in particular, I think it skewed a little older and straighter and more conservative, and I don't necessarily mean politically, but conservative in many different ways um, than I was comfortable with. It was also really transient. Hmm. And we'd gone through a hurricane season that was pretty unprecedented to that point for Southwest Florida. It seemed that every weekend, as I tried to take a breath and unplug from the station and from journalism, that's when the hurricanes would come. So I was working 
almost the entire hurricane season without a break. And then Hurricane Charlie hit. And by comparison, Charlie was small, but it was devastating to our part of the state. Punta Gorda, uh, Florida is where it made landfall. And I was, I was just done. I was done with hurricane seasons and I was done with, I think, Florida in general, although that's a very beautiful part of the state, the barrier islands of Sanibel and Captiva, which in this most recent storm were pummeled to my devastation. But I was ready literally for higher ground. Mm -hmm. The job came open at Colorado Public Radio, and I applied, and I got it. What year was this? 2004 and five. That's a good time to move here, too, because it was still relatively inexpensive. <laughs> it was relatively inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about what my first rent was, mm -hmm. it's a bit mind-boggling. <laughs> my first rent in Boulder was 400 bucks, including utilities. What year was that? Uh, 2008. 400? Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay, mine wasn't <laughs> quite that low in Denver, but it, it still seems obscene when I tell people what I paid. <laughs> so you end up here in... Yeah. Of 2004, and it's it's not Florida, that's for sure. <laughs> it's you, not. You moved to Denver. I moved to Denver. You know, I'd, I'd known Colorado as a skier because my stepfather uh, would bring me skiing in the Rockies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I knew Denver as the place we flew into. Yeah. And I didn't really know much more than that when I moved here. I had... My first college boyfriend is from Golden, and when he found out that I had gotten a job here, he gave me uh, the skinny on what neighborhoods to check out, and it was a nice introduction. Remember when there was nothing in Rhino? I do remember that. In fact, my first apartment was at 22nd and Market in a brand new building oh, that wow. had been at the site of the Premier Tire Company, so they called it Premier Lofts. And Rhino was... It was basically like sausage making. I remember a few sausage making meat packing businesses, um, maybe a stray artist or two that yeah. had begun, you know, begun the transformation. And then these condos for sale, the fire clay lofts were some of the first condos for sale there. The Larimer Lounge in the Meadowlark were oh Meadowlark and nothing else. The convenience store across the street was kind of the only other thing. You know. Going into the hobbit's den of the meadow lark, what what a what a joy! Oh my goodness, that space! So many uh, wonderful artists who are world famous, who, who we now see on um, at Jimmy Fallon mm. and shows like that, got their start playing meadow lark. You know the Lumineers, Nathaniel Rateliff. Yep, I bet maybe Gregory Allen played meadow lark. Oh, I, for sure, I'd guess. Yeah, I get. I also remember the. Well, the first days of tracks, the tr tracks used to be by the ballpark, but uh, from my understanding, but I remember tracks. It was about the only thing on that end mm -hmm. <laughs> of Rhino. I'm not even sure it was, it had been branded Rhino when I moved there. You know, that, that I don't remember kind anybody of calling that it congealed, that. right? The river North. Yeah. I don't remember North anybody District. calling it that in the, in the late 2000s. Even. Yeah. That's more a 2012 phenomenon. Yeah. Something like that. I'm so glad that it's, it's had a Renaissance. Mm -hmm. I miss some of the grit. <laughs> so you fell in love with the city. Sounds like. 
very quickly. You know, I grew up in L.A., and I spent time in Boston. I spent a little time in New York. But it had been a long time since I'd been in any real city because I had been working my way up in journalism. And so it was Sioux City, Iowa, and Dayton, Ohio, Mm -hmm. and Fort Myers, Florida. And, you know, these were magnificent places in their own ways, but they were not big cities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I suppose any number of people would argue with you about whether Denver is a big city, but it Mm -hmm. was the biggest city I had lived in for some time. Mm -hmm. And so it felt to me like a megalopolis, you know. And I did, I, I very quickly fell in love with it. I mean, there's so much to fall in love with the parks, the people, it's such a crossroads, you know, lots of folks who are originally from Denver and Colorado, but then you get, you get those really kind Iowa, Iowa transplants. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get the edgier Californians and Texans. And it was a very sweet time when I moved to Denver. I miss it. Yeah. I'm nostalgic for it. Sure. Have you seen this bumper sticker that says, go back to California and tell all your friends Colorado sucks? No, but I, I know that sentiment very mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I try to be openly from California. Mm-hmm. I, tr- I try not to hide the fact that I grew up there because I didn't choose to be born in Los Angeles. You know, and I love the people who say, I'm not from Colorado, but I got here as quickly as I could. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I want to be honest about the realities, the economic realities and the realities around displacement and the realities around gentrification and the realities around people who move to a place and then don't have a sense of its history. Mm -hmm. Those are all very understandable sources of frustration, especially for people who've been in Colorado for much longer than I have. And so I do think that when you move to a place, you have a duty to understand its history You have a duty to understand how you might be changing it and what you owe the people who came before you. I think if there were more of that when we moved to a new place, Mm -hmm. I think we might be better off. Because, you know, that anti-California sentiment, it is rooted in, in real grief. I get it. Grief? Oh, yes. I think people are grieving affordability. I think people are grieving the losses of places they knew as kids. Yeah. I think there's a lot of grief in how we talk about Californians and Texans because it's about what people who have come before us have lost. Yeah. It's a wonderful place here. And I think um, Boulder might be ground zero for not in my backyard and... At least in Denver, there's more real estate. Yeah. Well, you know, we have a mayor's race coming up in Denver. And all of these themes, all of these themes will emerge, no doubt. Well, maybe, you know, somewhere on on the ballot, there could be um, a a history examination. When you you get your license, you need need to answer. (laughs) That would be remarkable. Let's go to album number two. Album number two. Yes. Again, in no particular order. Nina Simone, Little Girl Blue from 1959. That's a great voice for the apocalypse, you know. This this voice of um, wisdom and softness. And also, uh, she kind of puts you in your place as, mm. as well. You know, 
when she sings, it's, it's as if you have nowhere to hide. Yeah, Nina Simone's voice is the culmination of so many experiences. I watched the documentary that I think it was her daughter made. Oh, yeah? I haven't seen that. Oh, it's really worth watching. And it was the first time... It was the first time I realized how deeply racism can affect mental health. Hmm. I think that we, we think about the... Certainly the emotional toll that racism takes... We're becoming more and more aware of the economic toll, the generational toll that it takes. But it was really an exploration of how a constant, constant racism, you know, I think of the song Mississippi Goddamn, mm-hmm. just a constant racism can wear someone down. Yeah. And yet, of course, she had so much grit and so much talent. My goodness. Uh, I was introduced to Nina Simone by that same host family, that same French family wow. that introduced me to Barbara. So it turned out I had to go to France to discover one of the American greats. Yeah. Well, there was a long period where, because in part because of racism, a lot of African-American talent moved to Europe. Oh, yes. And I can imagine a time when, if you happen to travel there, you would get an, an education in what should have been American heroes, Mm. you know. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's probably most famously embodied by Josephine Baker. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Who was also a a war hero because she was a spy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks for teaching me. There's this incredible book that came out a few years ago about a, a trumpeter named Arthur Briggs who moved to Europe to become a jazz sensation. And he really didn't feel comfortable in America whatsoever mm. because of his skin color, you know. And he was a hero of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and all these people. They would go over there and say, you should be in our bands, you should be a star. But he didn't, he, he didn't, didn't want to make that sacrifice. Yeah. Wow. And he ended up in a concentration camp in the war. And was forced to, you know, be in the band, in the concentration camp, and survived. It's an incredible book. Wow. Yeah. Remind us the title again, or the subject. His name is Arthur Briggs. Arthur Briggs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll look him up. Yeah. Thank you. So most of your um, interviews are over the phone or over Zoom. Is that correct? Well, in the pandemic, most of them were remote, but yeah. we're back to studio interviews. It's a real mix. Yeah. It, you know, it, it obviously depends on our schedule and the guest's schedule and their location, but there is no substitution for eye-to-eye contact. Yeah. Oh, Terry Gross, you know, she hosts Fresh Air, and 99% of the interviews on Fresh Air are remote. Mm-hmm. She's not in the same studio as the guest. She prefers that because she says that it puts her on the same wavelength as the listener. Not. Wow. Yeah. I never thought of it that way that your only cue is the sound. But I I crave eye-to-eye contact with my guests. Maybe it's the difference between a local and a national show. Yeah. 
but it's a real mix. That's good. And um, I've been putting a, a lot of thought into that as well. And I feel like, you know, the body movement, the eye contact, mm-hmm. everything, it, it really shows you all of who somebody is. I think that's um, right. But that is really interesting to think that you're not on the same wavelength as, as the listener who only mm-hmm. hears the voices. I don't think there's a right answer, by the way. I right. think there's a right answer for me, and there's a right answer for Terry Gross, and there's a right answer for you. So being a uh, staple of public radio and also a, um, a torchbearer of the uh, centrism that we talked about, mm. your voice also carries a sort of moral compass in a way. Huh. And I wonder if you have any guilty pleasures in, you know, because you're not perfect. Oh, sure. like my vices? Are you yeah. asking about my vices? Exactly. Oh, well, goodness. I, if, if there's something that I have an unhealthy relationship with, it's probably some amount of consumerism mm. because I'm a clothes horse yeah. and a shoe horse and a, and a bag horse. So I, I probably have an unhealthy relationship with stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not afraid to admit that. Well, at least there's there's not really a stuff hangover, so you can still work, you know. Right, but then one is one is forced to come to terms with what it means for our planet. Yes. When you order stuff, you know what it means for fuel consumption, where that came from, who made it. Yeah. You know, I think that's why it feels like a vice. Yeah. And then I'm just serially bad at relationships. I mean, I have great friendships, but I'm just terrible. In romance, absolutely terrible at it. But do you think that's the um, partly how many responsibilities you have and how much you work? Yes, I think that being inextricably linked with my career is part of it. Mm. But of course, there are people who have similar jobs to mine who are married and happily so. So I think it's only a dimension. I also just think a lot of. LGBTQ people, they just had their growth retarded because they were in the closet in really important formative years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I might be 44 chronologically, but I'm like 32 maybe in love because I was just robbed of years of, of like romantic formation. So I, I feel like it's a function of stunted growth from being closeted and having shame. And you know, there's all sorts of reasons that I am bad at love. Yeah. When did you come out of the closet? I was... I was 16, and so I was a sophomore... 16 or 17, I was a sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. And how did your family react to that? Uh, very well. Yeah. Yeah, I come from a kind of new age... California, right. not to bring California back into the discussion, but I come from a pretty new agey family. Mm-hmm. So I also don't think there was a ton of surprise. You know? Right. There are these experiences where someone shares that with their family and they say, we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that I ever heard we know. Maybe I heard we know from my stepmother. I think I'm, I more heard I'm, n- I'm not surprised. Yeah. But, you know, I was made to think of this recently because of the Club Q shooting. One of the families of the deceased reflected on the fact that after their kiddo came out, that the thing they were most afraid of was that there would be a hate crime. 
And that was true of my mom. I remember telling her mm. I was gay and her first thought, you know, before I'm not going to have grandchildren. I mean, that's no longer true, right? There are so many yeah, couples yeah. with kids. But, you know, her first thought was for my safety. Yeah. And when I heard a parent of a Club Q victim say that, it really hit my heart because it's exactly what my mom said. Have you done an interview yet with the veteran who tackled the shooter? Not myself, no. Someone at CPR did? Yeah, you know, the, the, the newsroom is big enough now. This wasn't true when I started at CPR, but it's big enough that I don't always know what the left hand is doing. Right. But, um, yeah. yes, I, uh, my hope would be to sit down with that person. I also think there needs to be balance in yeah. how much someone is called and asked for an interview. Yeah. I'm not sure if he has been on, you know, Good Morning America or something like that. No, I know that he did. I think the New York Times broke the interview. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. I instantly bought a, um, a T-shirt from his uh, website. Yeah. You know, and is that from the brewery? Yeah, and it says "Diversity on Tap" oh. on it. And he and his wife posted a video on Facebook mm. a few days later, and and were very humbled and grateful. And they also said, "Thank you so much for buying all of these shirts and all all these thousands of people." And they said, "Look." We had like 20 shirts. This is going to, this could take a few months. We or... need to print. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love this notion of inundating someone with love. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that story is such a nice example of how, especially in social media, we can lift each other up in really good ways. It can be a good thing. Yeah. You are a force on Twitter. <laughs> and similarly, it you know, it can be a, a good way to connect and, and a good way for people to inundate someone with love if you need to mm -hmm. or get news really fast. But uh, do you also experience just the, I mean, Twitter can also be the, the asshole of the world. I'm really lucky. Yeah. I'm so lucky on Twitter that, you know, I have had the occasional ugliness and troll. Mm. But, you know, I recently posted to Twitter and I saved it, pinned it. Mm. The reasons I'm staying for now, you know, it's a, an assessment I make on a daily basis. But I wrote, I'm staying on Twitter for now because, one, the vast majority of you are smart and kind and funny and profound. Two, I've given up enough space to homophobic anti-Semites. Three, this forum can inform, not inflame. And that includes all that you teach me. And five, four, I, I lost count. <laughs> it's where I share my colleagues' work. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I said, you know, if Twitter is not your jam, because I realize that I'm in a fortunate place to feel like I can still have a voice there, um, you can find me on Mastodon and Post and Instagram. Yeah. And I'm now trying to manage too many platforms. Right. But I have seen the, the power of good that Twitter can be. Mm -hmm. And it's true when I tweeted that one kind of explanation of why I'm staying on Twitter. It's true that I'm, I'm staying not only to impart what I learn, but because I've learned so much from people on Twitter. Yeah. 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 
Album number four. Are we at four? You, you, however, are able four. to keep count. <laughs> Let's see. You know, I decided that I needed to pick one musical, and I'm a little torn. I wasn't sure if it should be Little Shop of Horrors or Oliver or The Music Man or Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat or Annie. So I think I'm going to go with Little Shop of Horrors. That was actually a musical I was in. in what part that, did you play? It was high school. Seymour. Yeah? Yeah. That's great. And I also just, you know, it's a bit cliche, right, for a gay kid to say I love musicals, but it's true. I grew up with musicals. And I think that in this zombie apocalypse situation where I'm holed up in Ordway, I'm going to need a little levity. So I think a musical is a good way to go. And yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to need to belt it out a little bit. What's your favorite uh, staging of Little Shop of Horrors? I've only seen the movie with Steve Martin, Rick Moranis. Yeah, I, I guess the the film, and yeah. you know that's not the original, right? Oh, right, right. Yeah. There, there was, um, no, it's not the original movie. Oh, that's not the original movie. I so this is that. the strangest thing. I didn't learn this until a couple of years ago. Um, Jack Nicholson. What? Was in an early version that was not a musical. It was Little Shop of Horrors without any music. Have, have he you played seen the shopkeep. He played Seymour. Have you seen it? I have. It's strange. It it doesn't really sound like it would work. For, for but I think I'm like you. I think the the movie. What was it? Rick Moranis. I think that's mm. my favorite. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I guess it, my own appearance. You know, I'd like to think was a revelation. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is a film that when I was a kid. One of those rare things that scared me, and I like that it scared me, but it legitimately oh. scared me. Was it the, was it the dentist or the plant that scared you? It was both. I remember. Yeah, I was afraid of the dentist as a kid, and I'm still afraid of the dentist. But that one in particular was terrifying, and you know, being eaten by a plant is mm-hmm. scary in itself. I'm trying to think about my reaction, whether there was fear in it. It's so campy. I mean, it's such campy horror. That I probably was more attracted to the camp than I was. Right. The gore. My kid really likes Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh-huh. And that's another one that's... Yes. It's not, it's not quite as bloody, but it does have a murder. Oh, for sure. It, you know, that's been interesting. I was raised Catholic and couldn't talk about sex. I literally can't even talk about sex to this day. Yeah. And so my kid really likes Rocky Horror and we watched together twice and there are these questions... And I say, ask your mom. <laughs> That's essentially. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna drive home to Denver singing. There's a light over at the Frankenstein place. It's fantastic. God, I love that song. Have you been to uh, Rocky Horror at the theater where people throw? Of course. Rice. How dare you ask? Me? How <laughs> dare you? I have. Um, I'm trying to think if it's my favorite like camp movie experience. I love the midnight showing of Psycho. I don't know if they still do it at the the Esquire in Denver. Oh, that sounds fun. One of the things I really want to do is take my kid to a showing of Rocky Horror. So that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened experience. Yet. Oh, oh, good. Um, this is probably the most I've ever talked about myself on the show, and maybe, maybe we'll take it out. Who knows? No, no, but don't. When I Maybe was... that's a function of being with an interviewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when I was around my kid's age, I would go to Rocky Horror on Friday nights in, in Pittsburgh at the Hollywood Theater. 
Was this uh, unbeknownst to your Catholic parents? Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, at one point, my friend and I were uh, very poorly lying, saying we were staying in each other's homes. (laughs) And one night, it was about 11.30, which was when... Yeah, everybody was backstage getting ready. I was never in it, you know, but I would go and hang out with the people who were. And I was smoking a cigarette in a circle with a bunch of friends. And at one point, everyone just kind of stopped and froze and looked right behind me. And my mother is standing there in her big white winter coat. Oh. And I turned in and she says, let's go. Oh. That was a Rocky Horror bust, you know. Was that the first time you'd ever gone? No, that was probably the 10th time I'd oh, gone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And recently I watched the movie The Perks of Being a Wallflower Mm -hmm. and there's a whole Rocky Horror thing. And I watched that with my kid and I was just so excited during the scene where there, well, there are multiple scenes, I think, where they're doing Rocky Horror, but it was filmed at the Hollywood Theater that's set in Pittsburgh. And Mm. so I'm watching this with my kid and I'm saying, that's where my mom (laughs) showed up. Wow, in the white coat. Yeah. 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 You know, it reminds me of how when you would be punished when you did something wrong. The thing that was most painful is that you disappointed your parents. Mm. The thing that was most painful to me is that when I would get in trouble, they would take away the things I love, you know, like the drums. They would take Mm. my drum set away or I couldn't go to see Rocky Horror, you know. I'm sure there were consequences. I was such a mama's boy that I I think there were very few instances where she needed to punish me. But in Mm. the times that she did... Nothing stung more than the notion that she was disappointed in me. Mm-hmm. There's probably something there to unpack. Well, I'm sure she is is not disappointed in you anymore. She's not. She's in deeply fact, the I, opposite. I just got off the phone with her before we started taping this, and she she's a lovely and supportive mother. That's great. So you are 44, you said? 44. Okay. And, you know, you're do, you're doing extremely important work. Thank you. Covering anything interesting that has... Colorado angle. Hmm. So what are your goals at this point? You know, it's interesting. I came to a point in the job at Colorado Matters where, this is how I describe it, if God whispered in my ear and said, this is your career now, this Hmm. is what you will do until you retire, that I wouldn't be disappointed by that. Hmm. This is the first job where I can say that because everything before this involved a certain amount of seeking the next opportunity and working my way up to a larger and larger market. I don't have that feeling anymore. You don't see this as a stepping stone. What's that? You don't see this as a stepping stone. I don't. And you know, I have one of the best jobs in the country as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I certainly have one of the best jobs in public radio. And, you know, I occasionally get the question, and and it's flattering to hear, oh, when are you leaving us for the network? Mm. And, again, uh, what a compliment. But I don't don't really have those plans. And there are cities that I would leave Denver for. There aren't many of them because the quality of life here is so good. But, in a way, the longer you spend in a place, the better you know it and the better you are known by its people, that's hard to leave. I mean, if I did go to Los Angeles or New York, or if I went to Washington and joined the mothership, you know, NPR, there's an entire 
audience that I have to get to know and who has to get to know me and a different city or a different mm. um, beat that I have to get to know. And, you know, at 44, I mean, I'm still young, but that's a, that's a major proposition. Starting and, over. you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a large fish in a medium pond right mm-hmm. now. You yeah. know, I don't know if I would do very well in a Los Angeles or something. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I'm sure a lot of people oh, will be you. happy to hear that's, that as well. That's kind. And it is. It's hard to beat this place. Yeah. I feel I'm very blessed to be a cyclist and to have done Ride the Rockies mm-hmm. uh, numerous times. Do you know what that is? Of course. And it takes you into, um, it's a different route every year. And so you learn that you could spend your whole life in Colorado and not see half of the state, you know. I think that's right. And there are these small towns that you come upon and and you say, well, how did I not know about this town before? Mm -hmm. I want to get back here. I think that's true. I love that about Colorado. I mean, for a state that, you know, compared to where I came from, Los Angeles is, is relatively small and, you know, people speak disparagingly of square states. There is so much contained in these borders. There is so much contained. And, you know, I think one reason I'm not jonesing to leave is I think there's so much more to discover. Yeah. But this is also a place that reinvents itself. And so... You know, it's it's not the Colorado that I moved to. Yeah. It's not the Colorado I knew five years ago and ten yeah. years ago. So not only are there all of the old stories to tell and the history of those who came before us, but there's the story to tell of its reinvention. Yeah. So it's just, there's just an endless stream of, of interviews to be had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear them. Oh, good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, your your fifth and final. Is this it? This is the final one. It's gone yeah. by so quickly. The Cranberries. Everybody else is doing it, so mm-hmm. why can't we? Cranberries for me represent the first band I loved separate from my family. Wow. So the first concert I ever attended was Harry Belafonte. That's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. Who had come to the McCallum Theater in Palm Desert, California. But the Cranberries I fell for in college, and they were purely my love. And I remember wanting to get my hand... You must have had this feeling. You may still. I remember wanting to get my hand on everything. Posters, yeah. mugs. Right. They put out a CD with a CD-ROM. Do you remember when that was a oh, thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's called Doors and Windows. Sometimes there, there would be like a little uh, video game exactly. uh, on there as well. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was the Cranberries video game. You could open these doors and <laughs> windows and there'd be little insights into Dolores O'Riordan. Mm. And I think it was also my first concert that maybe I paid for. Mm. I saw them in St. Louis and I 
I don't think I've ever loved a band as much. I mean, Why is that? What did you love about them? I loved Dolores's, you know, I'm so sad we lost her. Yeah. I was, I was so looking forward to a concert. The Cranberries were touring the globe, but they were doing so in smaller venues and with like a chamber music orchestra. Oh, wow. So it was all their stuff, but kind of in strings. Mm-hmm. And she died just before the Denver concert, and I was gutted by it. But I think I loved her trill, you know, that just that Irish yeah. trill. Is that the word I mean? I think so. I mean, I know what you're talking about because Lilt. Dreams has that part um, yeah, 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 where she does that, and it makes it makes it uh, it makes it Irish essentially. Exactly. You know? yeah. I loved that. Yeah. And they had such range, right? It was like mm. the anger of a zombie, the sweetness of dreams. Yeah. It was in a lot of movies, too. And I loved the movie Boys on the Side. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. It started in Pittsburgh. That's right. The first scenes were in Pittsburgh. I do remember that. Yeah. They escaped Pittsburgh. <laughs> a lot of people escape Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to love in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Andy, War- Andy Warhol isn't, you know, the, not the It's least underrated. It's, it's one of the underrated cities. And Hilly? Yeah. Yes. Well, the bridges. I mean, there are. Uh, Venice is actually number two in the world as far as the number of bridges. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Pittsburgh has four hundred and thirty. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And a good public radius. Is it WDUQ? Well, there's also WYEP. WQED is what Fred Rogers was on. Yes, indeed. Have you ever seen footage of the cranberries at Woodstock '94? Oh, I don't know that I have. Is I'll check it out after this. That's one of those performances that I show my kid and I say, this is great. If you, if you want to see something or not only the, the performance is great, you know, but the setting, the mm. connection with the audience. Mm. I was amazed at this recent documentary about Woodstock 99 and what a shit show yes, it was. What a mess. Yeah. yeah. They didn't talk about Woodstock 94. They almost acted like it never happened. It was a huge success and... And everybody was wonderful, from Bob Dylan to Nine Inch Nails to, I mean... To the Cranberries. Cranberries. My goodness. Well, this will yeah. be one of my first tasks after the recording yeah. stops. You know, I'll just mention one cover of a Zombie mm-hmm. done by this absolutely magnificent singer called Maya Sykes for Postmodern Jukebox. Do you know that YouTube channel? No, I don't. They take contemporary songs and they do them in various 20s 30s and 40s styles like puddles the clown puddles started on postmodern jukebox that's how puddles rose to fame anyway maya sykes cover of zombie even talking about it i get goosebumps Mm, that's how i feel about the cranberries playing dreams at woodstock okay same thing consider it done yeah one last question for you ryan yes um, you got these five albums. Yes. You're in this small town and there's no one there except mm-hmm. you. What is one item that you would take as long as, as you're escaping, you can carry it with you? Oh, is it too facile to say my phone? Your phone? Yeah. That's not going to work for long. Right. I'm not going to have power. Okay. So something maybe a bit more analog. Unless you want to have some sort of a mental break and can think I bring that my your cat? phone is working. It's my, ca- my cat isn't an object. Sure. Okay. I'm bringing my cat, Bob. That's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Most of the people I have on the show, not all of them, but most of them are um, musicians. Mm. And they instantly say my guitar. 
Mm-hmm. First thing. So that's a great. Although oh, I should probably answer a microphone or something just to, you know, be in line with radio, but that's not what came to mind. I think I want my cat, please. That's a great answer, please. Thank you so much for being here. It was lovely. Oh, thanks lovely. for the questions yeah. and sharing your own story, too. I'll give you another hour and I gotta run, I gotta fly away, leave you to fall. That was me and Ryan Warner of CPR and also Bud Bronson and the Good Timers. Hopefully not for the last time. Um, You can listen to Ryan Warner on Colorado Matters at CPR.org all over the world. And um, thank you to the Gold Hill Inn as well. And um, thanks for listening. If you're in the Boulder area, Saturday, June 3rd, I really hope you stop by the Boulder Roots Music Project to see my second ever live recording of an episode of Mile High Stash, this time with guest Steve Varney, um, singer-songwriter and also the multi-instrumental um, sideman for Gregor Allen Isikov. Um, all the info for that is at rootsmusicproject.org. Once again, thanks for listening to My Last Stash, and we will see you right back here, as usual, next Monday. So you want to rise above duality, you want to transcend day and night. Yes, I'm old-fashioned, I just don't share your passion.